Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. See, you, you think sometimes that you're a seasoned broadcast veteran, and then you miss that critical piece of unmuting yourself at the beginning of the show. So my best material was in that five seconds that you just missed. But uh, hello and welcome to you all after that little bit of a false start. This is the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North on this Tuesday, December 6th. And I want to just get right into it because the the story I want to tackle today in this lead segment is one that a lot of the time I think Canadians might be well aware of before... Uh, academics and journalists start to pay attention to it, and that is grocery store pricing, which, as we know, has been at just record levels in this past year, anecdotally, and we've got uh, data to back this up. And unfortunately, I'm not really going to be the bearer of good news here because it sounds like uh, things are going to be getting worse next year. The uh, report that came out uh, just yesterday, Canada's food price report, finds that we're looking at about another 5 to 7% on average increase next year, which could add, I mean, in some cases, over $1,000 to a family of four's grocery bill. And if you want to talk about some of the numbers here, uh, they're very, very stark. Uh, the upper estimate that I'm seeing here is $16,288 in food costs for a family of four over the course of 2023. That's an increase of $1,065 over this year for a two-adult household, about $7,711, which is an increase of about $500. So these are not insignificant increases, especially when you bundle them up with other cost of living increases that are taking place in other sectors as well that we all have to uh, find a way to pay for. I want to discuss this in a bit more depth with one of the researchers involved in this report, Professor Stuart Smythe, who is from the University of Saskatchewan. Professor, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Good afternoon, Andrew. Pleasure to join you. So when we talk about inflation, a lot of the times I think people try to find a, a simple explanation for something that might have a few different inputs to it. When we're talking about food prices here and the rate, the increases that you're identifying in this report, are we seeing the product of a number of phenomena or are we seeing one or two major drivers? I, I'd say it's probably three or four, Andrew. So, so we've got the war in Ukraine that's creating rise in, in commodity prices, which pushes up uh, the cost of ingredients for, for all of the, the various food products. We've got the fact that OPEC's still capping production, pushing uh, oil and gas prices higher. We're, you know, even though prices have come down from the peak in the summer, we're still 40% higher than last year at this time. And and you're right, with inflation and the, the decline in the value of the Canadian dollar, that just pushes up the cost to to import the fruits and vegetables over the, the coming winter months from the southern U.S. And then the last one I throw in there is the labor shortage. Um, the trucking industry estimates they've got 15 or 20,000 vacancies right now, and they expect that could rise to, to possibly over 30,000 
by spring. So just the, the longer uncertainty in transportation, all of those really come together and, and are sort of the, 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 you know, the evil four that are driving um, food price increases. Three of the four things you identified there are, by and large, things that are problems outside of Canada that, that we obviously have to deal with because of the global uh, supply chain here. But, I mean, the obvious thing that jumps out to me, not being an expert in this field, is, is that is this the product of not doing enough to shore up domestic production? Or is the nature of food supply and production that... We, we just as a country don't have the domestic capacity for that given how interconnected and how globalized food supply is. So that sort of spread throughout the, the grocery store, Andrew, we do a fantastic job on the meats and the dairy and the, the breads, um, those aspects. And, and in the summer, we can do a little bit of the fruits and vegetables, but, but come the winter months, then we're starting to, to import, um, you know, the vast, vast majority. So it, it's somewhat commodity specific. We, you know, we've got potatoes that will be distributed across Canada for months because of just the, the massive amount of potatoes that are produced in PEI. Um, so, but, you know, apples and pears and those kinds of things, we, we tend to run out of those into, you know, not too long after harvest. So we're bringing in apples from, from various parts of the world, right? Yeah, that's fair. And I, I know that certainly there are people that pro like grocery stores have a level of seasonality to them. You know, everyone gets excited when, you know, this product's in season or that product's out of season. But I think generally speaking, consumers kind of like being able to buy whatever they want year round. We've been, I don't know, we, we spoiled a little bit because of the global supply chains that, you know, if you want to pay enough for asparagus, you can eat it virtually any month of the year, regardless of whether we produce any in Canada in January or not, right? So, so, so yeah, I think we've, you know, previously when, when food prices were a little bit more stable, um, consumers were a little bit less discerning as to, you know, what they were going to buy for any particular meal. And, and, and now, you know, you go and look at a package of lettuce that's eight, nine, maybe 10 bucks, you know, consumers are, are sort of second guessing whether or not they, they actually need to buy that product. Um, for, for this coming week. I know when you start moving the, the phenomena you're describing here into the political realm, there, there's a lot of finger pointing here. The conservatives have raised issues about the carbon tax exacerbating, not necessarily causing this. Uh, does that kind of trip your radars here the, as a meaningful uh, increase to this? I think it, it's certainly getting factored in and will be more so in come April when the carbon tax jumps by 30% from 50 to $65. So it, that impacts every mile of food transportation and, and we're a big country. So transportation costs are a significant component of food prices. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, fuel prices uh, and grocery prices are, I think, the two main things that Canadians are seeing uh, as far as symptoms of, of this inflationary period we're in. And, and obviously that, you know, the fuel price, you're paying for it when you fill up your own tank, and then anything you buy that was shipped to where you bought it from, you're, you're paying a little bit downstream there. So we, we look at these numbers in 2023. Is there anything that's looking better or at least markedly not as bad as other things? Or is it kind of painful across the board, across uh, different sections of the grocery store? The one bright spot I see is there's a, there's a global indice that looks at supply chain disruptions. And it peaked in sort of late January, early February of this year. And it's down 75% now. 
So, so what that says to me is that things that were causing problems in the distribution of food products has, has greatly eased. Now, we may not be seeing much evidence of that just yet in, in Canadian grocery stores, but I think over the, the first three to six months of 2023, that will become more noticeable. So the, the supply of products is going to be more consistent. And, and I think that, that um, removing some of the uncertainty in, in distribution of products is, is going to have a ripple effect on the prices that um, we may see a bit of a plateauing of prices as we move towards spring. Are, are, so on that note, are, are grocery prices kind of a bit of a lagging indicator in some ways? Like if some of those uh, problems you identified earlier were to resolve or, or at least get better early on, how long does it take for those changes to trickle down to the grocery store price tags? That sort of is dependent on specific products. So the, the, the grocery stores are going to put purchase contracts in place maybe up to, to three or four months in advance. And... And so as the variability on those prices affects now, so the things that retail grocery chains are buying right now will actually show up in grocery stores February, March, April. So, so you're right, those lags will have an impact and we may be paying a higher price now due to things that happened in July, August and September. So um, that's part of that uncertainty and as, as I, as you know, as I think that uncertainty gets reduced, then that that helps contribute to stabilizing the the prices. Fingers crossed, a little bit more. I, I shudder to ask this because I, I know that this is a very painful uh, trend that we're seeing for a lot of Canadians. But on the production side, for uh, farmers and industry that are exporting these things, are they actually seeing any upside from this right now, or is any upside in their price getting swallowed up by their increased operating costs? Yeah, I mean, certainly commodity prices have been higher this year, but but fertilizer prices have probably been equally as high. And in talking to farmers, you know, and, and my students over the past number of months, they said that the crop that they put in the ground in, in April, May, June of 2022 was the most expensive crop they ever planted. So so that certainly indicates that, yeah, the, the rest of the ag input sector realized that commodity prices were up. Um, but supply chains also restricted the, the availability of fertilizers and, and chemicals um, that were equally important. So, so I don't know that the margins of profitability margins for farmers are going to be significantly different um, this year than, than maybe in past years. How about on the grocery store side? Because I know, uh, I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago, uh, Loblaw's uh, third quarter profits were up about 30%. And I, I know they've been criticized of, you know, perhaps padding prices and using inflation as a bit of cover. But I, I don't know what, you know, would normally be expected from them at this time of year. Loblaw's is, is a bit tricky, right? Because they've purchased London drugs. And, and when they report all of that financial information, they're not separating... The, the London drugstore component oh, okay. from from the Sobeys grocery store. So we we don't know the the difference between say a bundle of carrots and a, and a bottle of facial cream. So that's what makes their numbers a, a little tougher to 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 really get a good grip on. Whereas a lot of the other you know the grocery stores are reporting just just the actual grocery the aisles kind of things, not um, the pharmaceutical side of things, right?
Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. I, I guess just to, to put this and perhaps a little bit of a hopeful uh, end on this discussion here, I mean, Canadians are, are having to make decisions when they go to the store, and if they can't afford products, they're having to work around that. Is, is there a, a fix or a Band-Aid that governments could apply here, or is this really, a, in your view as a, as a researcher, a, a ride-it-out situation? Maybe the one area that, that the government needs to, I think, would be a timely reassessment is whether there's value in having supply management in our food system in 2022. Um, supply management was put in the dairy poultry industry in the 1970s when markets and the size of farms were vastly different than they are today. I'm not saying we should or we shouldn't get rid of it, but I think it's a perfect time to, to do a reassessment of the need and the benefit to consumers uh, of supply management, particularly in the dairy sector. I am completely 100% on board with you, and I am completely 100% sure I'm going to get the uh, angry onslaught of emails from dairy farmers every time I or a guest make that point. But I, I think you're very much correct, and I think obviously, you know, if we were to see that happen, I, I'd want to make sure they were compensated for it. But, you know, Canadian consumers can benefit from the, the choice and, and the competition there. So I, I think you're, you're right to raise that as far as what we could be doing here. Uh, Professor Stuart Smythe from the University of Saskatchewan. Thank you so much, Professor, for your insights. It's good to talk to you. My pleasure, Andrew. You have a great afternoon. All right. Thanks very much. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Uh, and you, look, let me just say here that I think it's important to get the numbers. It's important to get the context. I, I What's bothered me is how people were raising alarm bells about this for months before politicians were even acknowledging it. To his credit, when I sat down in the federal election campaign of 2021, so uh, this was a year, actually, yeah, it was a little over a year ago, and it was with Pierre Polyev, who was at the time just the conservative candidate for Carleton. And we were sitting down, and I remember it was like a 40, it was like, a, actually it was like 57 degree. It was like just a really, really hot day. And we were sitting on a, at a park picnic table outside doing the interview and he was talking about inflation and this was when justin trudeau was sort of like rolling his eyes being like oh i don't think about monetary policy that's not my job and and you know canadians were saying wow you know i think it should be your job as the prime minister of canada when my family is struggling to buy groceries and now you're looking at sixteen thousand dollars a year just let that sink in sixteen thousand dollars a year for a family of four to have groceries. That is money that has to come from somewhere. You take a family where perhaps only one of the parents is working, and that is a pretty significant chunk of what they need to bring in. A $1,000 increase. So that is $1,000 more than existed last year that has to be spent without necessarily coming in. If someone makes $50,000 a year, that is uh, almost one week's salary. It's actually more than one week's salary. They make $50,000 a year. So these are not numbers 
that exists just on a balance sheet without having very real world consequences for people. And I appreciate what Professor Smythe was saying, that we're talking about a number of different inputs here. We're talking about, yes, the war in Ukraine. We're talking about, yes, the labor shortage. The carbon tax also plays a role. Supply management plays a role. General cost of living tends to be filtered down and people are forced to deal with it at every stage in the process. So if your employer can't give you a raise because of the cost of living issues and then your cost of living is going up, that money has to come from somewhere. And even when the economy has been doing better, you get reports that come out periodically on how close people are to not being able to make their monthly expenditures. And sometimes the line is that, well, people are within $200 of having to go into debt just to keep the lights on, just to pay for groceries and housing and their rent or mortgage. So you take that, that was two years ago, that it was $200 a month on average was what people made. That's $2,400 a year. So almost half of that buffer has been eaten up by inflation on one particular expenditure alone, and that is groceries. You throw gas in the mix and it is almost entirely gone. This doesn't happen without there being serious consequences. And I'm not going to look at Trudeau and say Trudeau has caused inflation. I will certainly look at him and say he has contributed to it and his policies have contributed to it. And he has had the opportunity to offer even a nominal reprieve and has not done it. And I think this is important because when the government talks about the carbon tax, they say, oh yeah, it's just, you know, it's just a couple hundred bucks a year and we're, we're giving it back to some people. And, you know, when the price of your grocery bill is going up $1,000 in a year, a $200 carbon tax payment is actually quite significant. That is one fifth of what you're getting hosed for by increased grocery costs. One fifth doesn't cover it all. But at the end of the day, would you rather have that $200 in your pocket or would you rather Justin Trudeau have it to give it to someone to retrofit their Prius with a bit of tofu or whatever? I don't, I don't understand how the, the green retrofits work, but you know what I mean. And that's the whole point is that government has inserted itself in the middle of this as a supposed solution, but is only adding to the problem. And I want to play a clip for you here of this being brought up in the course of the House of Commons. And, you know, interestingly enough, Garnet Jenis, uh, who is a conservative MP we've had on the show, decided that poetry was the answer to this. Take a look. It was the night before Christmas and no one could afford a house. Some people were blaming a fellow named Klaus. The Prime Minister said he would have people's backs, but it turned out his real plan was to triple the tax. The holidays are here, there's a gift shopping tradition, but things are more expensive thanks to the costly coalition. So instead, just rest, stay home, take a nap, try to forget about the Arrive Can app. If you hear the sound of a reindeer's hoof, then it's Santa, not Stephen, up on the roof. Santa reaches down inside of his sack. He knows what the people want is to have their freedoms back. But if you hear the sound of a convoy truck, then the message for liberals is, and the mandates. Jesus was born with a hope to save every sinner, even the ones who attend the press gallery dinner. At Christmas, we celebrate the joy that we find and proclaim peace and love to all people kind. This might not be as good as Kuzner's last riff. I just hope it won't get me shot by Jorno Dale Smith. To us, the night before Christmas, inflation is the worst. The Conservatives have a leader who will put the people first. You know, I think his meter was a little off. I, I think, you know, he could have done a little bit better on the pacing. I think some of the rhymes were good. I'm going to give, I'm going to give Garnet an eight out of 10 
for that poem. I, I think I think eight out of ten. It, some Christmas generosity. I'll say seven and a half, but you know we like to round up on the Andrew Lawton show. So I'll give Garnet an eight out of ten on that. And if he wants to like drop a beat next time he's on the show, we'll give him some backing there. Uh, and I, th- I was actually hoping Phil Lawrence behind him was going to do up and start doing the go-go dancing behind him, get Leanne Rude and Marilyn Gladue to do it, do the can-can, have a whole little music party there. He covered a lot. He covered the convoy. He covered inflation. He covered the World Economic Forum. And in the end, Canadians are still forced to deal with a government that is not taking this nearly as seriously as it could and nearly as seriously as it should. And perhaps it's because the government is so focused on trying to do things that have nothing to do with any uh, public policy outcome that is uh, at all relevant to Canadians, such as going after law-abiding firearms owners. Yeah, this has been a fascinating turn of events. We spoke a couple of weeks ago on the show with Rod Giltaka about the Liberals' efforts to uh, pivot their firearms ban to a ban on virtually every semi-automatic rifle out there, including some non-semi-automatics, including even 22 caliber bullets, which, again, they're still real bullets and they can do some damage, but they're like the, the tiny, tiny uh, bullets that are used for shooting tin cans. And the government now seems to be admitting, at least to some extent, that they've stepped in it. So what happened was the firearms community really just ratcheted up its opposition to this and said, when, when you say that you're just going after the so-called killing machines and not the hunters, how do you justify these bona fide hunting firearms being on the banned list? And of course, the gun community talks about this. I talk about it. The straw that broke the camel's back was a guy that I had never heard of talking about it. His name is Casey Prose. Now, uh, K- sorry, what's that? Carrie Price. Carrie Price, okay. Uh, now, Carrie Price, is that a woman? Man? No, man, okay. So apparently he is a goaltender for the Montreal Maple Leafs. And uh, no, what, sorry? Montreal Canadi- Canadians, okay. The, I didn't know there were any uh, patriotic Canadians in Quebec. So the Montreal Canadiens, and I'm teasing, I know very little about sports, but I do know that the Montreal Canadiens are one of the original six hockey teams. So I don't want you to take me too, too seriously on this, but that is like the extent of my knowledge of sports. And whenever I try to do a sports segment, I have no idea what I'm talking about. But supposedly, Carey Price is a relevant figure in the uh, world of hockey. Uh, I don't believe that the Montreal Canadiens have uh, done all that much in terms of winning Stanley Cups, I'm told. Uh, so I don't know if he's good or not. I don't know if they're good or not. I just, he, I'm, I don't even have a team and people are going to hate me for this. So uh, let me just, <laughs> okay, what were we talking about? We were talking about guns. Let me get back to that. So Carey Price, the uh, supposed um, defensive tackle for the Montreal Canadiens, uh, comes out and says he's a law-abiding gun owner and takes aim at Justin Trudeau for going after people like him. And and this was, I'd say, actually very relevant because he permeates beyond just the world of standard gun owners, sports shooters, hunters. He has an audience that is broader than that. And I think he put a human face on firearms ownership, which doesn't really exist a lot of the time in the debate. And it was fascinating. And you fast forward to yesterday and Justin Trudeau says, no, 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 we're going to actually take a look at this and consult on this. Take a look at the clip. We made a commitment to continue to move forward with strong, smart gun control. 
uh, in this country, to keep communities safe, uh, to keep Canadians safe. And we're going to continue to do that. We move forward with a national freeze on handguns. Uh, and a few years ago, we banned military-style assault weapons. Uh, sorry, banned uh, assault-style uh, weapons. We're going to continue to do that. Now, we've just put forward uh, a list, and we're consulting with Canadians on that. We're hearing a lot of feedback around concerns that uh, hunters uh, are saying about guns that they use more for hunting or uh, hunting rifles or shotguns. Uh, and that's what we're listening to feedback on now to make sure that we're not capturing uh, weapons that are uh, primarily hunting weapons. But we all know that we need to make sure that guns that are designed to kill the largest number of people as quickly as possible have no place in Canada. And we're going to continue to move forward with that in a strong and smart way. We'll continue to listen to Canadians. We're not going after uh, hunting rifles or shotguns. Um, we are targeting the most dangerous weapons, the weapons that were used in places like Ecole Polytechnique or, uh, uh, or recently in South Simcoe uh, or in Portapique uh, that have caused far too much uh, tragedy over the past many, many years. Uh, so we're moving forward in a responsive way. Uh, some uh, conservative politicians at the federal level want to uh, restore military-style assault weapons. Uh, we're not going to let them do that. We're going to continue to keep communities safe in a smart way that respects uh, law-abiding gun owners. I'm told that my plan to start the True North Sports Hour is not a plan that uh, has been approved by True North Management. So I believe it was all set to happen. And then you come out and make one crack about the Montreal Canadiens and it all goes to hell in a handbasket. But uh, Justin Trudeau's clip there, was a fascinating one because he, he says, oh, no, 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 we're just consulting. We put out this list just so we could consult and hear from people. No, you put out the list because you wanted to ban them. You wanted to ban bolt-action hunting rifles. Now, if you don't know anything about guns, that's fine. A bolt-action rifle is a rifle that you need to manually reload by pulling back the bolt, the action, every single shot on. It is not a mass-killing machine. It could kill if in the wrong hands, like any firearm could kill if in the wrong hands and in the right hands could save a life or at the very least cause no risk to public safety whatsoever. So there were guns that were undeniably hunting guns on that list. This was not a consultation. This was not the Liberals saying, we'd like to hear your feedback. This was the Liberals thinking they could sneak in yet another ban that does nothing to stop gun crime. When was the last time, there was a, I should have pulled it for the show. There was a picture that the Toronto police posted of a mass seizure of illegal handguns. And when you look through, you can actually scan them. There are a few dozen guns in the picture and not a single one of them is a bolt action hunting rifle. There's no 22 caliber uh, rifle on there. There's no uh, Weatherby Mark V. There's nothing in there that at all resembles the firearms that the federal government is trying to ban now because they're already illegal. And even if the guns themselves were not prohibited, the application of them, people buying them illegally, carrying them illegally, and doing so under the auspices of organized crime is already captured by the law. It's already captured by the law. I believe we actually have that picture now. Can we throw that up? So that's, that's the photo. 
And you can look through that list. Every single one of those firearms illegally owned. Not a single one is bolt action. Not a single one is a shotgun. Not a single one of those guns was taken off the streets by Canada's gun laws. Now, I say absolutely throw the book at the people that sold those guns, trafficked them, the people that used them. Throw the book at them. And every law-abiding gun owner in this country would stand behind me when I say that. Because gun owners are the safest demographic group in this country if they are law-abiding licensed gun owners. We are background checked. We are screened. We take safety very seriously because we know that you are more likely to hurt yourself if you mess around with firearms than you are to hurt someone else. So that's why gun owners take this stuff so seriously. Gun owners are the most tough on firearms crime people you will find. Except they're actually interested in real firearms crime. Not these paper crimes that admit that exist because the government one day says, we don't like those dirty, stinking, conservative gun owners. We want to make them overnight criminals. We want to ban their property. We want to make it illegal for them to go to the range. We want to make it illegal for them to pass down family heirlooms. We want to make it illegal for them to do something that brings them joy, or in the case of hunters and ranchers, that does something that is central to their lives. And this liberal government doesn't get to hide behind, oh, we, we're just consulting with you. No, you are trying to once again criminalize a segment of the population because you know that group is not going to vote for you anyway. We got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in and my sincere condolences to sports fans that had to listen through my interpretation of the sports angle to what I think is a politics story through and through. That's why we did it here. But I thank all of you for tuning in. We'll talk to you tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.